0: Well, I have a, uh, a, a different introduction that I have written down today uh, for this uh, sermon, but we, we come to Exodus chapter 20. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and uh, as we go through the book of Exodus, we, we come to the, the halfway point. It's a 40-chapter book, uh, and we come to the Ten Commandments. But uh, this week, um, after I got my, my notes done and, and printed off and ready to go and, and everything like that, I, I got into an interesting conversation. In fact, growing up, I've mentioned this several times, but growing up, one of my favorite things to do growing up was uh, during, during Christmases or during, during holidays or whenever our, our extended family, specifically on my dad's side, would get around, we would come and we would debate. We would come and we would debate. And it would be interesting debates. Uh, it, would, it would mostly be uh, either religious or political. But but once again, I kind of repeat myself on those kind of things because our politics should reflect our worldview, which is found from Scripture, which is our, our religion. And so it was always these debates. But uh, this week I had an opportunity to get into one of those debates uh, with my, my grandmother and then also my, uh, my, my cousin. And both of them are, are much more on the, the liberal side of things. Uh, than I am, and my, my cousin, it was interesting in talking to him, uh, because uh, as he was presenting certain things here, um, I, I may mention at some point in time, you know, uh, communism is, is bad. And I, I think that, you know, it, it amazes me, because depending on the, the, the different age ranges that we talk to, you know, if you got some gray in your hair, that, that's kind of like a, well, duh, of course communism is bad, right? I mean, communism uh, has, has, has been over the last hundred years killed a hundred million people, right? It's, it's a terrible thing. It's destroyed countless, countless nations and, and countless lives of people. It's a terrible thing, of course, Karl Marx. Uh, said that his goal in life was to uh, was to dethrone God and to destroy capitalism. Uh, communism, even if you go and you look at uh, Lenin and, and different things like that, it is inherently anti-God. They believed that religion is the opiate of the people. Absolutely, completely godless in, in what it is and absolutely destructive. But as I was talking to my cousin and I made this claim, you know, that communism was bad, I thought that was a pretty, you know, well, duh, claim. And he's young. He's he just uh, he's about twenty years old, nineteen, twenty, something like that. And and he goes and says, well, I I mean, I'm not I'm not like a a, a full communist, but but I, I like certain parts of communism. You know, he started listing certain things. And, and he goes and he makes mention later on in this discussion that you know, well, the earth is overpopulated. Now, I, I, was, I, I didn't do this to, to him, and, a, and maybe I should have. It was kind of a passing comment. Somebody else jumped in the conversation. There were multiple people. I, I always like to ask people when they say that the earth is overpopulated, I always like to say, well, are you part of that overpopulation or am I? Right? Who, who is part of the overpopulation? I mean, that's it's, it's something people haven't thought through when they make that statement. But it struck me as we were going through this that... Our job as, as Christians, of course, we, we're to go and to proclaim the gospel, right? We're, we're proclaimers of the gospel. Uh, but as, as we go and we start proclaiming the gospel, the problem is, is that, that as this discussion progressed, it became very clear that, that, that this person thought that they knew something about, about Christianity and the Bible. It's funny, just about everything I was saying, I was making claims. Really, life became the, the main issue that we're talking about, abortion. Uh, and, and so I go and I, I make the, the claim, well, uh, so he goes, he says, well, the, well don't doctors decide as to, to how old you can be when you can abort? And I said, well, in New York and Virginia, uh, it, it's to the day of birth. I, I go and I, I make that statement. To the due date, you can go and, actually, past the due date, it's, it's to the day of birth, you can go and, and have an abortion. And he, he didn't believe me, so uh, pretty soon, he didn't say he didn't believe me, but he starts going and looking it up, and he goes, whoa, that is crazy to go and to see this. But he, he, he comes at this from this perspective, and this is the younger generation that we have, probably my generation and younger, comes at this from the perspective of, of, of a few different things, but one of them is, is that they know something about Christianity because they live in America. And America, they've been told, is a Christian nation, and so they have a, a cultural, quote unquote, cultural type Christianity. Now, we don't really have a cultural Christianity in America so much anymore. I mean, we, we have crosses and different symbolisms and things like that, but there's not a whole lot of Christianity within our culture. The second thing, as it comes about, is that those who are are conservative specifically, but those who have a biblical worldview, are stupid and don't know anything? That's generally the two two of the major premises of the younger generation. And, and why do I bring this up? Like I said, this wasn't my original uh, introduction. But it's for a very specific reason, because what we're going to be looking at today is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, and pretty much every, uh, every point, let me just kind of go through and look at them just to make sure. Um, I, I, yeah, almost every point, I didn't name one with this word. But almost every point here, I have the word morality in it today. We're going to go through ten points, the Ten Commandments, taken one at a time. Pretty simple approach, but it's about morality and this is important to understand because as we go and we make proclamations of the gospel, because we live in a much more postmodern world, or we're proclaiming the gospel to a postmodern generation. Those who don't believe in truth or objective truth, they believe in your truth, my truth. Jesus might be good for you, but Jesus isn't good for me. All trains lead to the ocean or they lead to nothingness, whatever it might be. All paths lead wherever they might go. But, but the, the reality of it is is that it is a different day and age as we're talking to this younger generation. Now that doesn't mean that the power of the gospel isn't there because the power of the gospel is unto salvation, right? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Therefore, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think that there is something to be said about this when we are talking to the younger generation, we need to go and show them that their morality does not work. Their moral premises do not work. And the only moral premises that do work are that of Scripture. Are that of Scripture. And where do we find these moral premises? Where do we find the moral law? Where do we find the foundation or the heart of it? We find it in Exodus chapter 20. And that's where we're going to be today. So if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we already read this in scripture reading Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17. So I'm not going to read it as a chunk of passage, but we will be reading it here uh, kind of verse by verse as we go through it. But before we get to Exodus chapter 20, while while you're turning there, I, I want to read a passage from Matthew chapter 22 In Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 through 40. It says this, and Jesus was confronted about this here. He's confronted by a Pharisee in Matthew 22, and this is what it says. It says about what was the greatest, or he was confronted about what was the greatest commandment. and It says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We can sum it up by saying love God and love your neighbor. And we can sum up the ten commandments, the first four. Love God and the last six. Love your neighbor. And this is something that's really important. And that's kind of the breakdown that we're going to be looking at today uh, concerning our slides. I want us to remember that. Starts off with the first four. Love God. And let's start off with that first one here. And I've got in the first one. Uh, monotheism is the foundation for objective morality. Now that's a lot of big words. I'll, I'll, I'll break that down here in just a moment, but the first one is found in verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. That is commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. And like I said here, I, I titled this here, monotheism is the foundation for objective morality. Well, what is monotheism? Mono means one theism. We're talking about God. One God, it's the foundation, it's the starting point, it's the only firm place for objective morality. Now, what's objective morality? Objective morality is a set standard. It means that murder is always wrong, right? It means that something is always wrong or something is is right in going and looking at this. Or we can have subjective truth or subjective standards. Uh, or subjective morality. What would be subjective morality? Well, subjective here, with subjective truth, might be, I might go and say, orange is my favorite color. Well, it's true. Orange is my favorite color, so therefore it's a subjective truth. But it would be wrong of me to go in to make that objective and say, orange is the best color. Right? That's that's not necessarily true. You might go and say, hold on, hold on, blue, blue's the best color. No, no, yellow's the best color. Well, That's your opinion, and those are things that are opinion, but it's not opinion to say that shooting somebody in the head for no reason is murder, and that is evil and wrong, right? I'm gonna need you guys to agree with me on this one here, otherwise I'm gonna be a little bit afraid, right? Right? Murder's wrong, right? Yeah, good, 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 okay. Because otherwise we have a problem here, we have a problem. So monotheism, one God, is the foundation for objective morality. The only way to have objective morality is through this idea of monotheism because more than one God brings more than one standard, right? What happens if Zeus and Hades disagree? Well, then the followers of Hades believe in this kind of a thing and the followers of Zeus believe in this kind of a thing and there's no objective morality because they might disagree on something that is objective and something that is Moral. And this is why Western civilization has been so successful, because it's been said that Western civilization is the combining of Athens and Jerusalem, where it's when Athens and Jerusalem met, and by Jerusalem, they're referring to the Ten Commandments. Jerusalem had a monotheistic standard, as the Jews had that, and so do Christians. We believe in one God. And Athens had great thinkers, but they had many different standards as they were polytheistic and had many different gods or many different cults. And so they they had all these different moralities and, and standards, and it led them to competing and always going against one another. And not one true standard, but in Western civilization, and by the way, America is the crown jewel, a little bit of pun, you know, no pun intended being a crown jewel in us throwing off the monarchy, right? Uh, but, but, but being the, the crown jewel of Western civilization, we are that, that pinnacle or the best place in Western civilization that we've seen so far. And it's all because of this idea of monotheism, one standard, one standard. And of course, we had the right standard. Because you can have one standard and have the wrong standard, of course. But we have one standard and the right standard, which is the word of God. And we declared it in our Declaration of Independence when we said, nature and nature's God. We're talking about where our rights come from. But one truth, one voice, one moral arbiter, one person who's deciding what's right and wrong, and that's one God. Objective morality everywhere is dependent upon this. You must have it in your home or you're going to have issues, right? One standard. If you have multiple standards, you have issues. That's why little children, I don't know what it is with little children. Actually, I do know. It's called. it's called that sin nature, right? It's called that sin nature. But, but it, it amazes me. I mean, Thomas is too. And, and we've never taken him to a class on how to be a sinner. We've never, we've never done that. But, but it amazes me because when he wants something, he will go up already. And he'll come up to me and he'll ask me something and I'll say... No, you can't have a cookie. Right? That's generally what he asked for. Then what does he do? He goes over to his mom. You know, who, he's not very smart. She's sitting right next to him. Cookie? Cookie? No, but what is he doing? He's trying to see, he's testing to see if there are different standards. If you have different standards within the home, you're going to have issues. You're going to have issues. That's why the husband and wife need to be on the same team. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of issues. But uh, objective morality, Western civilization, it comes down to one voice, one truth, one moral arbiter, one God. This is simply, though, in a house with that child that's reflecting a higher principle, and that is one God with one standard. One God with one standard. Now, of course, the, the parents aren't God, but they're reflecting this position of authority from the delegated authority that God gave them, and they're to go and to have that idea of one standard within the home. And going and, and giving them that. And so the, the child, though, is going and testing is their is there polytheism in the home. It's essentially what the child is going and doing when he's testing that. But it's consistent throughout Scripture. We have that there has been one God, right? In the beginning, God. Hear, O Israel, then, the Lord is one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. All throughout Scripture, we see this proclamation of one God. And this is so important. I could go and talk for hours and hours and hours upon this idea of objective morality and how important it is and how it is foundational to monotheism and one God, in fact, well, one of my, my favorite things to go into to do, and I can't wait for, for this, all this COVID stuff to really light up so that, uh, so that it's more acceptable to go onto UNI campus again, to go and to talk to college students because I really like to go and present them with moral dilemmas and start talking to them about moral dilemmas. And pretty soon I start asking them, you know, I, well, but by what standard, how is that wrong or, or things like that? And they, they always start off with the same premise, almost all of them. And that is, is that well, truth is subjective. You know, that's your truth, but this is my truth, and, and my truth is different. You can't force your truth on me. Although, well, what if my truth is, is that my truth should be proselytizing, and, and, and then all of a sudden you're forcing your truth on me by saying that I have to be silent. You know, they, they don't, I don't. I don't take them down that road, but but that's always something I think of. Uh, but but then I go and I say, now hold on. I I say so. Well, when a school shooter comes into a, to a, to a school, I, I said, I think that's wrong. Do you think that's wrong? And they said, yeah. But I said, but what if it's his truth to go, and it says it's right to go and shoot somebody? I said, don't you think that's wrong? And shouldn't we do something about that? They said, well, it's, yeah, of course. And I said, so it's not your truth, and it's not my truth, because otherwise you're denying his truth. And they said, well, that's true. I go and I say, so how do you find out what is truth? they go and I say, well, uh, it's, it, it's, you're right, you're right. It's not just mine, it's not just yours. It's com- more complex than that. It's about society. Uh, 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 you, you know, whatever society as a whole goes and says. And I say, oh. Now hold on here. You know the problem with that? They say, no. And I say, well, you don't look like a racist to me. They say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, back in the 1700s, society thought slavery was good, and you're not going to tell me slavery was good, are you? And yeah, It was right. And they go and they say, well, uh, no, 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 I said, good, but I didn't think you were a racist. I said, so society doesn't, that, that consensus doesn't really work, does it? They go, no. I said, so, where does truth come from? Where do we can find that standard of truth? And they're thinking generally at this point. They're thinking hard. And pretty soon this is generally where they ask me, I don't know, where? And I take them to Exodus chapter 20. That's where I take them back to Exodus chapter 20. So we have to have one God, one standard, otherwise it's not objective morality and our earth does not function. It becomes dysfunctional. We have to have these kind of conversations, and these kind of conversations lead to Scripture, and they lead us to the Gospel, because any time you come to Scripture, we can go to the Gospel. And that is so important to realize, because when we're going and we're proclaiming the Gospel, and don't get me wrong here, sometimes it's just a quick proclamation of the Gospel, do what you can. But if you have a chance to really sit down with somebody and talk with somebody, especially someone younger, you need to challenge their moral precepts. You need to go into challenge their presuppositions and their thoughts on morality because the reality of it is is that they think that when you proclaim the gospel, they're thinking, well, that's fine for you to believe, but I don't believe in objective truth. I believe in subjective truth. So that's great that you believe that. Jesus works for you. But don't tell me Jesus works for me because I like my Darwinism that tells me I can go and do whatever I want to go do. And there is no more uh, objective morality anyway. And so if we're gonna reach the younger generation's souls, we really have to go and present the law in order to go and to convict them. But most importantly, we have to destroy their worldview through the worldview of Scripture because their worldview does not work. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But I wanna to go to the second, the second command here today. And i titled this here, The Wrongness of Idolatry. And it says through verses four through six, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and to keep my commandments. By nature, we as human beings are Worshippers, We're worshipers by nature. God created us to worship. He created us, of course, to worship him. That was the original intention, but we are always worshiping. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're always worshiping and we're worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? The reality of it is, is that because of our sin nature, we are idol factories. We love idols. We love to make idols. And this command, of course, covers Idolatry. And this command is expounding on monotheism, and the first command, uh, that is that idea that we love the Lord our God. And it is an extension of this, because in Matthew six twenty-four, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Morality gets skewed when we have idols in our life. We will not obey God's standard if we have idols in our life. And this is something that is an interesting idea when we stop and we think about this. Because idols, what is we it talk about here? Don't make graven images and things like that. Ultimately, uh, this <laughs> comes down to, you know, we haven't gotten to the golden calf story, which is a direct violation of this, right? But he goes in they make a, a golden calf. But essentially what they're doing is making a new god. Today, because we don't, we, we live in really a, a post-religious type world, or at least normal religions, uh, most people are secular humanists today, and because of that, we make our idols in different things. Um, you, you, you know, one, one thing it might be is is, is sports, I, I remember, um, it was about seven years ago, when I was in my office and I was singing the song, as you're all on the altar of sacrifice laid, your heart is the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield Him your body and soul. And I'm going and I'm singing that in my office and I look up and I, I have... Uh, well, one of the most prized possessions I've ever had in my life and it was on the top shelf because it had, it had priority. It was well, it was there and it was in, in this great place. And what was it? It was an Iowa State basketball that was autographed by Jeff Hornacek. One of my, my, my favorite Uh, memories of a child growing up was what was going to this Iowa State basketball game. My my dad and I went to many Iowa State basketball games together. But but this one was special because Jeff Hornacek, the only Iowa State basketball player to ever become an all-star in the NBA, was there, and and there he was. And we got to go, and and we got in line, and man, it was taking forever and ever and ever. In fact, the people come up, and they, they went, and they said, right in front of us, Right in front of us, they said, uh, here's here's the line, literally, the person in front of us. They stopped with us. They said, I'm sorry, they're not going to go. And There's a, a, a bunch of different people who are signing autographs. I think Johnny Moore was there, and, and and other people were there, other Cyclone greats. I don't remember these other people who were there. They said, right here, right in front of us, you guys, you don't get to get the autographs. This is all we've we got time for. And Jeff Hornacek stopped and he said, no, I will finish out the line. Wow, that was cool. But one of the things I struggled with and have struggled with in my life is, is the idolatry of sports specifically, Iowa State sports. I mean, I, I mean, one time I remember getting ready to watch a basketball game. I know you're saying, what do you mean getting ready to watch a basketball game? Because most people just sit down and watch a basketball game. Well, I really, really like basketball. And so I went and to watch this basketball game, to prepare for watching this basketball game. I went back and watched... The three previous times the Iowa State Cyclones had played the Oklahoma Sooners. And I went and I broke down the plays that they were running. And I went and I I, I watched it and I I did this. I spent hours going and studying out the film. In fact, when I went to go watch the game, I was calling out the plays that Oklahoma Sooners were were going and running. And I said, oh no, he's going to make that shot right there. He likes to shoot right there. That's his sweet spot. Don't do this. The coach couldn't hear me through the TV screen. He'd been much better off if he could have. I, I had a much better breakdown than the Iowa State coaches did. But it was times like that that I realized that this was an idol in my life. And I remember going and taking down that Jeff Hornacek basketball and going and throwing it away. Not because it wasn't a fond memory, but because I realized it was causing an idol in my life. I still enjoy Iowa State basketball. Last year I didn't because they were terrible, but... But it's no longer an idol in my life. We're idol factories. And even if it's something like that, it's not Zeus that we're worshiping or Thor that we're worshiping or whatever it might be, whatever God. We laugh at those things, but uh, paganism is on the rise in, in America. The reality of it is, is that when my heart is consumed by Iowa State basketball or whatever that idol might be in our life, My heart isn't being consumed with Jesus Christ, and my morality gets skewed, and I start making decisions based upon Iowa State, as opposed to God, and what God says is right. We can make all kinds of things, anything, an idol in our life, because it's just something that gets ahead of God. I want us to notice here, we're not gonna go over the curses today. It'd be interesting to go over that. And and I've gone over uh, the 10 Commandments um, before, but I want us to look at the conditions of God's blessing because this is interesting. He says basically to love him, those who love him and those who keep his commandments. And I find this interesting because in John 14, 15, Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's as though God could go and say, you know, love me to those who love me and those who keep my commandments as though he could, it's almost as though he could say at the end of it, but I repeat myself and I repeat myself. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Our beliefs play its way out in our actions. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The third thing we see here is the morality of the mouth. The morality of the mouth, and this is one of two times that we see the morality of the mouth. We see the morality of the mouth towards God, and we also see the morality of the mouth towards our neighbor. But the morality of our mouth, and it says in verse 7, "'You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, "'for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain.'" Taking the Lord's name in vain, that, that, that's a sin. But what does it mean? Well, first of all, it encompasses several different things. A lot of times we just think that it's, it's uh, saying uh, God's name flippantly or saying it as a cuss word. But, but probably it more starts off with the idea of false oaths. False oaths. Making an oath saying, I swear as God is my witness and we're mine. That's, that's the first way. Probably that we take God's name in vain, making false oaths based upon God's name because God's name is holy. The second one is blasphemy. Now, now what is blasphemy? Well, blasphemy is is many different things. One could be claiming the name of God, taking that for ourselves. But but really, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is slandering God. It's defaming the name of God. That's really what blasphemy is. And we ought not to be blasphemous. We ought not to take the Lord's name in vain. The other one, or another one, is an irreverent use of God's name. Don't make God's name common. Keep it holy. Those two things are often pitted against one another in Scripture. What we sang this morning, you know, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We ought to make God's name holy we ought not to make it common. Now, by common, I don't mean using it commonly in your own use and use it all the time and things like that. I think the name of Jesus Christ should be in our mouth. I think that we should say the name of God. I think that we should go and tell others about God all the time. But the idea of common is that idea of going and devaluing it, devaluing it, not having a reference for it. It's interesting, uh, as I was was getting ready, and hopefully we'll we'll have it out here by the end of next week, our our, our next newspaper. Um, but as I was getting, getting it ready and getting it prepared, I'm, I'm going through it and I'm putting in uh, a lot of stuff in the Founding Fathers, because it's gonna be a June and July uh, focus and theme and things like that, so it's, it's gonna have a lot uh, on, on America and some founding sermons and things like that. It, it's I think it's pretty cool, I'm excited for it. But one of the things that amazed me is I was going through and I put a, a list of George Washington prayers through this. George Washington, uh, referred a lot of times to providence And he referred a lot of times to the almighty And things like that And, and he didn't use a whole lot As I'm reading through this here The, the name God and, and some people use that and they take that and they say Ah, oh, look he's a deist he doesn't say God Well really he was just afraid Of, of making God's name common And so wanted to keep it holy And so he didn't use God's name there because he was being So reverent you can see this Through his prayers you can see this of times before, but we need to remember to reverent, to be reverent towards God's name. A fourth way that we can go, and this happens with the morality of the mouth, that we can go and defame the name of Christ or, or take the Lord's name in vain, is that to use God's name in false religions or witchcraft. And we see this a lot of times today through, through, uh, through Christian mysticism in uh, different things like, like contemplative prayer. Now you should contemplate, you should think when you pray. But really that's a, a, a weird term that, that really is a changing of the term contemplative because you're no longer thinking. You're trying to empty your mind, think on nothing, bring in uh, Eastern meditation into your prayer life, empty your mind. In fact, you just go and say one word over and over and over and over and over until you're thinking about nothing. That, that's irreverent and that's, uh, that's bringing uh, that, that's bringing God's name into into false religions or at least false uh, uses of different things. We ought not do those kind of things. We ought to stay away from that Christian mysticism and things like that. But one thought here is that we can't rightly love God and misuse or abuse his name. So we should not take the Lord's name in vain. The last one here in this section of Loving God is the morality of priority. The morality of priority, the fourth commandment. And it's remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your sons nor your daughters nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord has made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and then all that is in them, and they rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, it's true that this is the one command that's not repeated uh, in the New Testament, that's not repeated there once the new covenant comes. But I would point out also that it is mentioned in in Genesis uh, before uh, the Levitical law. And I think that's important to go into remember, because I believe this is part of the moral law. But it's not part of the part of the moral law in the sense that Saturday is a magical day. Um, now, of course, a lot of times Saturday is the day off. So I remember growing up, Saturday was a magical day—the magical day where my dad always had a list of projects to do. Right? Uh, I, I think I heard a couple of amens out there. So, but uh, but but this—it th- isn't the idea that there's magic in Saturday. Uh, The Pharisees thought this uh, and the Seventh-day Adventists also often think this kind of a thing. But the principle is setting aside time to remember the work of God. Setting aside time to remember the work of God. And God finished his work on Saturday in the Old Testament. They went and they remembered that. But Jesus, who is God also, he finished his work by rising again on Sunday through the resurrection. And that is why we go and we honor Sunday and we worship God on Sunday. And it ought to be a day where we set aside and we give to God. And we go and we say, Lord, we we love you. And we're setting this day aside to come and to worship you and to reverence you and who you are. But when we come to this year, the first four commandments and the foundation of morality is love God. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is reproached to any people. There's never been a nation. There's never been a family. There's never been a person. Who's done right without loving God. We need to make sure we focus on loving God. But the second commandment, as Jesus said, is to love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. And we're going to see this here through these last six commandments. We'll go through them uh, quickly here. But it's the morality of Of children is the first one here is what I put down, the morality of children. And it says in verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth or on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. (laughs) Now, that promise there isn't because the parents are supposed to go and grab their children around the neck and say, if you don't honor me, your days are numbered. You know, that's that's not what it's talking about here. It's It's a promise from God. But it's honor your father and your mother. And of course, honor, this includes obedience, children. This includes obedience. And it also includes an amoral preference. So this is what I mean by this, and this is important. Uh, Of course, when it comes to obedience, we ought to obey uh, in in, in moral things. Uh, You know, if your parent tells you to do something immoral, that's you shouldn't do that because ultimately their authority is from God, they get from God, and if they go outside of that authority, they're doing something wrong. But you're to obey. But then, what happens if the parent goes and says, you know, I want you to go in to wash the windows this way, to go into to, to spray Windex first and then to go into to use the rag, or, or if they go and they say, to go in to spray the rag and then to put it on the window. I don't know, I'm just... Trying to think of something here. As children, you might think that you might have a a better way to do it. You might have a better way to do it. A more efficient way to do it. But that's an amoral thing. It's, it's, It's not a morality. And so you ought to obey your parents' preference in that. Most of the time they have a reason. Sometimes they might not. That doesn't mean you can't bring it up to them and say, hey, doesn't it make sense if we swipe sideways or, you know, Mr. Miyagi says to go round and round or, or whatever it might be. And they might go and say, oh, that's right. That's a better idea. Or they might have a better reason. But nonetheless, even if they say it's because I said so, if it's something that's amoral, we are to obey as children. It's a command for children and parents, though, because parents, you're to be honorable. You're to be honorable, Concerning this verse, Charles Ryrie said this, proper order in the family becomes the basis for a solid social structure. I think this is so important to realize because today we see so many attacks upon the family, but a strong family unit, a biblical family unit, is really what we need to strengthen our nation. The greatest thing we can do in winning the culture war and winning politics or whatever it might be, leading people to Christ It's really having strong families. We need to have strong families. Before the leftist becomes a leftist, they were a disobedient child. Before a church goat becomes a goat, they were a disobedient child. Family, solid structure. We need to have solid family structures. We need to commit to doing as much as we possibly can I also want us to look at the morality of life. And it says in verse 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Murder is wrong. The shedding of innocent blood is wrong because we are made in the image of God. Murder is the shedding of innocent blood. This command doesn't forbid capital punishment. That's important that we understand. There There are right times. This doesn't go against God's law to kill someone, but it's the shedding of innocent blood that's the problem. Now, of course, when we think of the shedding of innocent blood, the thing that comes to my mind is the horrors of abortion. And of course, we could get into the horrors of abortion, that it's a child being ripped limb from limb, or it's a child being poisoned. But I want to just simply leave us with this. Over 60 million babies have been murdered in the United States. Every year, if you go and you look at the statistics as to how many people died and what they died from, especially throughout the entire world, abortion is always the number one killer. The worship of Moloch is always the number one killer in the world. It's really sad too because we think of a baby as the most innocent among us. But also it's sad on the other side because especially in our culture, Many young ladies are conned into doing this. And it becomes absolutely devastating because they were told, well, that's just a lump of cells. And then afterwards they have feelings that it's not like I just lost my gold plaque. And how do they deal with those feelings? How do they deal with these things? Well they hate to think of the unthinkable that they actually murdered a child and so oftentimes they harden their hearts and harden their souls and harden their conscience. And they double down on the wrong side. They become antagonistic in these things. That's why we have to be speaking the truth on these kind of issues because it makes them much harder to reach for the gospel. In fact, I think there's probably a case to go and look at that In Romans 1, I I would never point to an individual and say this because I don't think we're supposed to do that. But in Romans 1, it talks about people coming to a debased mind through sin and really it's through unrepentance of sin and through that hardening of a conscience and through the, the grievousness of the conscience. And many people become unreached for the gospel because they've hardened in their sins so far because they were conned into something and because it would be so painful to look at the truth. So we have to go and boldly proclaim the truth so that people know ahead of time because it is something that is a gospel issue with reaching these people. With reaching these people. We understand the negative side of this command Thou shalt not kill. But whenever there's a negative, there's also a positive as it concerns logic. Logic dictates positive a positive and negatives to the commands. Don't lie means that we must tell the truth. The moral obligation throughout church history as it comes to thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. The moral obligation throughout church history has been understood as therefore standing up for the innocent. It isn't enough for us to simply recognize the negative part of don't do this. We must also understand the moral implication that becomes our moral obligation that we are to therefore stand up for those who are innocent. Proverbs 24, 11 says, deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We are called to stand up and to stand against, stand up for the innocent and to stand against the shedding of innocent blood. We are compelled to stand for innocent life because of this command and there are many different ways to do it and I, I hope that that most of you or all of you come out with me tomorrow at Planned Parenthood and I want to remind us something here that eternal life is a small step in conversation from physical life because one of the things that, that I've had told to me by my other pastors is that you know why, why do you do that you know like well like you know we're just supposed to go and proclaim the gospel well I can tell you that i been able to proclaim the gospel outside of Planned Parenthood is probably more than most pastors proclaim in their church. It's not that hard. If you can't think of a connection between physical life and spiritual life, especially since, you know, eternal life tends to start in the sense of, you know, when you die, and obviously we started eternal life before then, but... But in that idea of like, you know, you die and then you go to heaven or you go to hell. And it, it's not that hard to really figure out how you can go and make these connections and talking to people. And it's funny because, you know, I, I, I used to go out all the time and play, played softball and played basketball and played football. And, and, and I would do it with the stated purpose of I'm doing this to go and to proclaim, to, to proclaim the gospel to people, to go and to share, share stuff with them. And, 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 and I never had an to me and say, hey. You shouldn't be doing this. Except for football with no pass. Okay, I had some people come up and say, you know, (laughs) you're not a very big guy. That seems kind of stupid. But for a different reason. And I find it amazing to me that in our culture and in our Christianity society that we believe that it's okay to go in to do something that is completely not mentioned in the Bible. Trust me, I've looked. It doesn't tell you how to dribble a basketball in the Bible. I've looked, I've read it cover to cover. I really wish I could find out the secret sauce as to how to become a great basketball player through reading the Bible. It doesn't tell you that. But it does tell you all kinds of stuff when it comes to life and standing up for the shedding of innocent blood. If we believe that we can have a ministry through basketball, and I think you do, can. I think you have a ministry through all kinds of things. You can certainly have a ministry through standing up for innocent life. Let's also look at the next one here, and this is the morality of the marriage covenant. Verse 14, it says, you shall not commit adultery. This includes all sexual sin within this command because God designed sexual relations between a husband and a wife. We're gonna be brief on the subject today for the sake of time, but there's a lot here in this small verse. The marriage covenant is between God and man, right? When When they go to the altar there, it's not just with each other, but it is also there between God. And that's incredibly important to go and to remember. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Marriage and the marriage covenant is a gift from God. In fact, one thing I would just briefly point out here, and I, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we, we live in a nation that is, we do have a pandemic in our nation. We really do. Uh, and this pandemic is is really that of, uh, of STDs. If you go and you you look at that, Uh, Because of all of the sexual promiscuity and the the, the not obeying of, of, of Christian morality, we have an incredible pandemic on STDs. The statistics are like insanely high. Satan uses, though, immorality He uses this to destabilize homes and to instill his immorality into the next generation, which drives people further from Christ. So we need to go and stop and say, no, we're not going to have this. It stops with us. We need to be those who stop generations because oftentimes it's generations now of sin. Think about in our culture today, You shall not commit adultery. Today, adultery is almost magnified, right? You go and you watch TV shows or things like that, it's the exciting thing that's happening in the show. It's that somebody's committing adultery, somebody's cheating on somebody else, somebody's doing this or doing that. It's become normalized and heroized, really. We need to stop that and be countercultural. The next one though is the morality of possessions. You shall not steal. Theft is wrong even when it's legalized. We looked at this quite a bit this morning in Sunday school. But personal possession is an imperative to personal responsibility. Uh, we're going to have to give an account one day before God for what we have and what we do and what we do with what we have. And if you have no personal property, the reality of it is, is then you will have no personal responsibility. God did not design us to be irresponsible people. And so there is a, a, a worldview that comes out and says no private property, no personal property, going and in, in, in taking these things away from people. And ultimately, what are they trying to do? Take away responsibility. And of course, then the, the, it, it crumbles. Eventually, you run out of money from somebody else to steal, Right? Somebody else's money to steal. But there is something important to understand on the spiritual aspect that we as Christians, we will give an account for what we have and for what we do with it. To whom much has been given, much more shall be required. And responsibility is really only found in personal possessions. This is why... Socialism doesn't work because it negates that idea of personal responsibility, but more than it not working, socialism is immoral because it's taking from somebody else. We need to honor this command because it points to an eternal principle that is very important as we will give an account before God for what we have personally done, what we personally have and what we personally did with that. Once again, here in the next commandment, though, we find the morality of your mouth. Again, again, we find this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It isn't just between you and God that the morality of your mouth matters. You know, some people say, you can't judge me. God will judge me. Well, it's true. We don't judge people. We just agree with the judgments God has already proclaimed and made. But but the reality of it is, is that sometimes you want to look at people when they say that only God can judge me. You want to go and say, doesn't that scare you? Doesn't that terrify you? But the morality of the mouth here, it isn't just between us and God. It's also between us and man. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Morality isn't a private affair. Your morality impacts your neighbor. Sin has a price and ultimately sin moves sideways and it impacts those around you. Your sin doesn't just impact you. Even our words do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Obviously, it's it's ultimately speaking of like a a courtroom type setting and not bearing false witness against somebody being a false witness. But it also goes and impacts that idea of, of don't lie. We ought to be truth tellers. Our sin doesn't just impact us, though. It impacts others. Sin moves sideways in the impacts of sin. The last one we're going to look at here this morning is the morality of the mind. I want us to just spend just a few minutes on this. In verse 17, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. It is wrong to have... Wrong desires that you entertain. We understand that temptation is not a sin, so let's get that idea out of here right away. But coveting, entertaining desires, they are sins, though. Entertaining these desires. And God is privy to our heart and our mind. You cannot hide from God. He knows. So how in the world, though, does something that happens in my mind How is that a sin? How is that a sin? Well, first of all, our minds are are attached to our bodies, right? Evil actions start on the inside. In fact, let me read several passages of Scripture here that go and point this out because this is so important because there, 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 there really is, even in the conservative side of things in today's day and age, both secularly and Christian, there is really this idea of a... Well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, if it really isn't wrong. Or even if it's wrong, it shouldn't be against something or something like that. You know, it's it's not a big deal. But James four one says this: Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for the pleasure that war in your members? What is it saying? They start on the inside. Luke 6.45 says, A good man out of the good treasures of his heart bring forth good. and the evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart bring forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why is it important that we fight the battle of the mind? Now we can't legislate the mind, but, 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 but we ought to be able to go and fight this on an individual level. Why is it? Because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What you think you will soon do. Proverbs 4.23 says this, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. We ought to keep our heart with all diligence. Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now it continues, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. I think that's an interesting thing because we often just read that first part, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But then he goes on and talks about how they've done abominable things. Why? Because of what they've spoken in their heart. Ezekiel 16.30 says this. How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of of a brazen harlot. Whoa. Those are some harsh words from God. He's going and he's telling some people, you've done these terrible things, but what was his first accusation? How wicked is your heart? Why? Why well, he knows his hearts are wicked? Well, God knows the heart, but He also goes and connects the heart to the actions that they've done. And Ezekiel eleven twenty one says this: "But as for those whose hearts follow the desires for their own detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads," says the Lord God. He connects those desires with deeds. It matters what we think. It matters what's in our heart. And we need to go and to follow those ideas and keep our heart with all diligence. But today I want to conclude. We've gone through the 10 Commandments, but I want to conclude with Exodus 20 verse one. It says this, and and God spoke all these words. That's how it starts off. The reality of it is, as we go and we look at the 10 Commandments, We'll either realize that God spoke these words or we'll reject that God spoke these words. Either we'll hear them today and we'll obey the Ten Commandments. Or we'll hear them today and we'll ignore them. The choice is ours. Here's the heart of the moral law. You've seen it today, the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. Here's what it looks like to love God. Here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. This is what Israel was supposed to display as a nation of priests, as we looked at last week. And this is the standard that God has set. And today I just want to conclude by simply saying, I hope today, and I challenge you, encourage you, proclaim to you, however you want to look at it, to choose obedience. Choose obedience and God spoke these words, will you obey them? Will you obey them? They're simple things. That's because obedience is simple. Disobedience is always complicated, but that doesn't make obedience easy. Simple, but not easy. But may we seek to obey the moral law. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity given us to come and to worship you. What a privilege that is, Lord. And Father, as we think about your words and the words that you have said in these Ten Commandments, Lord, I pray that we would obey them with our full heart. Lord, that we wouldn't have any other gods before you. Lord, that we wouldn't have idols in our life, that we wouldn't take your name in vain, that we would we would go and have the right priority and remember the Sabbath or remember Sunday, remember the day that Jesus Christ rose again. Lord, I pray that children would obey their parents and parents would be honorable. And Lord, I pray that we we would not just not kill, but Father, that we would stand for life, that we would stand for truth. Lord, that we wouldn't steal. But Lord, that we would honor people's possessions and honor what you have given us, realizing that we will one day give an account. And Father, I pray that we would war to keep our hearts, to keep our minds set upon you to not have wrong desires, but Father, to obey you. Lord, we would just pray this would be to your will, not ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.